the talk this afternoon is on the discourse dealing and attending to our projections. Earlier on uh, today I spoke a little bit about uh, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis and the Dharma. I do want to make it of course absolutely uh, clear with regard to this that though enormous regard and uh, affection for this uh, Western contemporary tradition, probably 100 uh, years old or so, but in terms of the exploration of life, it can't, I would say, cannot possibly be said to be in the same depth of exploration that the Dharma encourages us to engage in. And when one just reflects a little bit with regard to uh, the Dharma, not only is it a challenge to all the constructions of every single state of mind which is possible, it's also an extraordinary invitation to run so deep inside of oneself that one finds places of profound absorption extraordinary depths of joy and love, tremendous gratitude and appreciation. And it follows it further through deeply to such shifts of perception and consciousness that realms are opened up which are rare for a human being to have access to, formless, immeasurable, seemingly without any kind of limit at all and still probing very deeply into the being, emancipate and open up the heart to such a degree that it opens up tremendous unstoppable love for all beings on the air, on the ground and in the water. And still says that's not enough. And still says there's more to explore in the depth of realisation which is liberating that one who knows things, the truth of things, as they are, has resolved all suffering and knows the true nature of things. Frankly, psychotherapy is not in that league. It's helpful, it's important, it's significant, it's invaluable for helping to deal with personal stories, to help understand the self, to make a valuable contribution to a way of being which is integrated and mature and seasoned and handling personal relationships and one's past, present and future well. Dharma actually begins in its best sense and its best tradition for those who are emotionally very well adjusted. But it also embraces and looks at the whole movement of the self from its most hellish and conflicting state of mind all through the whole spectrum of dukkha from the great hell of suffering right through to the momentary unsatisfactoriness of the appearance of I and where it lands and falls. And in that respect with its emphasis on an utterly awakened life, with tremendous uh, 
exploration of finding out wisdom and compassion, the encouragement to go into great solitude and aloneness, to really know what renunciation is truly all about, and perhaps most importantly of all, to know the deathless. This is what the Dharma is teaching. I regard it as incomparable on this earth. And it's not the responsibility, nor is it the duty, nor possibly the access. In many of the conventions of our great army of counsellors who do wonderful work, priests and rabbis and psychologists and therapists, to be able to point to what I've just spoken to you about. But the Dharma does. And that puts it into a very challenging place for all of us every day of our life, happy or not, well-adjusted or not. This is the extraordinary thing about it. And that's why the Buddha himself, not just poor Christopher, the Buddha himself spoke of the incomparable Dharma because of its tremendous capacity to liberate, to really awaken, to know a fulfilment with life that's unshakable every day, to wake up with it every day, to go to bed with this fulfilment every day. Nothing is missing, nothing is lacking. This is a beautiful thing to explore. And it requires as we all know, total fulfilment tends to require total commitment, total dedication for it. But whew, what a way to live. All right, sermon over. Here the Buddha gives uh, um, the teachings and he uses this word, papancha. P-A-P-A-N-C-A It has a kind of twofold meaning and the nearest English equivalent to this is projections. And my goodness me, we the poor human species have the capacity to engage in projections which tell us in the activity of the projections more about the subject who is projecting than the object which is projected upon. <laughs> do we forget this? Oh, do we forget this? Do we pay a price for this and does the poor object or person or place or situation have to bear the weight and this poor world that we're living in is, as it were, living under the weight of projections, as it were. And one does, what is the dynamic that goes on with all of this? And this uh, discourse of the Buddha, just remember this was given two and a half thousand years ago, even if it was never spoken, certainly two, around 2,200 years ago, it was certainly written down. There's mountains of evidence to show that. Whoever put this to there, had some extraordinary insight. And as I have often felt with the text for a moment or two, with all the depth in the text, nobody could have thought this up. Nobody could have thought up 
and tracked the four jhanas without experiencing them. It's not possible. Nobody could have tasted and known of the formless realms of infinite space and infinite consciousness, etc., without experiencing and knowing exactly what's being written and exactly how it does go from subtle. The mind can't think these things up. Nor in the extraordinary power of the heart to open up so it's limitless in its capacity to embrace. Experience became language into form. Someone or some some time ago had such realizations wanting to share it with humanity and when one reads the text with a few exceptions perhaps cultural, perhaps social, I don't know but the body of it runs through profound experience again and again and the deeper one goes the deeper the authority of the, of the experience so in this one it's exploring at different levels this whole movement in the inner life of projection and how that happens and what's going on with us. And remember, all the teachings, to repeat a little bit, is a contribution to waking us up, to seeing clearly, to coming out of the transfictions of I, me and my. And therefore making a shift to seeing things dependently arising in a process. And that is to come out of the eye, me and I. And so, good uh, talk. As you can see, I'm a fan of this talk. Um, begins with papancha, this uh, projections. And there are three primary areas that it tends to manifest. And it's up to us who, to, in being interested in what the hell is going on with our inner life and the state of it, to take tremendous notice of these three areas. First one is the relationship that arises to that which comes to our senses or to consciousness inwardly. It's called a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste and a touch and maybe a feeling and thought inside. Once it has arisen and touched us, papancha can have a field day with it. Projections can have a field day. That means it can grow, mind can go crazy once any object has touched the senses. And this meeting drives the world mad. So, there is what is out there, there is the bare object. Let's, let's we use eyes for a moment. We see something or someone. Could be the pilgrimage to the shopping mall, could be a beautiful woman, a handsome man, the nice house in the countryside, whatever it could be, doesn't matter, does it? And the raw event is the meeting of the colours, the bare impression upon the eye. And almost immediately a perception rises, it recognises it. And some, the colour, the perception, 
and the feelings there. What does the mind make of it? And in that meeting, that engagement, what's out there is essentially the raw material, the bare actuality. But it's not cold. It's not a nothingness. It does have the potency in the interaction to generate, let's say, a pleasant feeling. I open my eyes and I see lovely colours and nice people or whatever it might be. It definitely, the experience is definitely pleasant. And the pleasantness is through the interaction and maybe a pretty cold-minded dedicator dedicator, meditator and dedicator, <laughs> but anyway, meditator and I say oh, it's all in me oh no, it's not as the, the Buddha himself commented on the beautiful sight commented on the beautiful sound of music commented on the beautiful f- flower uh, uh, the, the, the lotus etc, etc so we're not trying to negate that but we want to see what else do we make of it? And when papancha arises, that means the projections or investment, the movement of the mind begins to perceive, this is important, this point, begins to perceive more than what's actually there. We begin to attribute, in this case, the sight, with qualities which it inherently doesn't have, but we actually think it does. And we think it does so strongly, we're persuaded by it. Oh, nightmare. Even in the movement, let's say, some of us, I like music. I go to the uh, CD shop, and someone has... Uh, suggested to me, oh, Christopher, buy this CD, etc. Even though there is the movement, there is some memory, I've listened to this artist before, there is a connection, I see the CD, the ear listens to it, perhaps, there's one candy stays in the shop, and there is pleasurable feeling which arises, all of that interaction in itself doesn't make papancha. In itself. But when there is some compelling I must have and there is some frustration and it's no longer in the shop and there is reactivity going on inside the movement has invested the object with an importance that it doesn't have because it's upset the balance of the mind. So movement towards doesn't necessarily mean papancha. When there is the wisdom behind it in which, this is important here, having or not having doesn't matter one iota. But when it begins to matter, 
and there is some dependency on getting what I want, Papancha is now beginning to distort the relationship. It's entered into the field, entered into the dynamic, and it's not an easy thing in life to catch it early. One of the... W- yes, Hans. I don't quite understand. In the Sutta, it says um, there's feeling, yeah. according to sense contact. Mm-hmm. What one feels, that one perceives. Mm-hmm. What one perceives, mm-hmm. that one papancheti. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, that's that. What one perceives, that's the coloring. That's what you call projection. Mm-hmm. Papancha is what comes after the projection. And you're the only one I know, and Vimalo, who translate Papancha as projection. In concept and reality... Right, we live in this, sorry, sorry, I don't get into an academic no, on this. Academic. No, no, just, let, let me flow on, because um, here, um, because you made some conclusions which are not uh, accurate and fair, either of uh, Vimalo or myself. I repeat, in the contact, that takes place, there is an impression and in the impression there is a perception, sanya I recognize it, whatever that might be and there will be some feeling, pleasant or unpleasant there whether I'm the Buddha of the Buddhas or whether I'm just Joe Bloggs in the high street eyes open perception and feeling will arise what I begin to make of it enters, as the Buddha said, so fast he can't give a simile. So the perception and the papancha can be simultaneously, or the perception can be there in the first moment, it's quite clear, and then subsequently the papancha arises, or simultaneously. And that's quite clear from the discourse of the Buddha. This bare perception, and then what we begin to make about uh, it, arises in numerous situations in life. And it's an extraordinary exploration, because when we hear of Yoniso Manisakara, wise attention, it really is an encouragement for us to see if we can be clear at the point of contact. That means that you see, you hear, you smell, you taste, you touch, you're the Buddha of the Buddhas, and you see, you hear, you smell, you taste, you touch, and you feel, and you perceive, and you recognize, and you acknowledge. But in the dynamic of it, we begin to build. Every advertisement, and I think we have some alarming figures here about television and violence and uh, which coming out of our television screens or every advertisement or whatever, is an awful situation for us as vulnerable creatures of the earth because we're so susceptible to impressions that we get the idea, which means the papancha, 
I need and I must have. And this impact of all of this gives us the idea something is lacking because I don't have. And it's so intense that though we may say and we may feel and we may know I'm not really interested in materialism I'm not really interested in consumerism but as the Buddha uses a strong word he says assailed it means assaulted we're assaulted with all this pouring in and we are assaulted within ourselves which constantly generates this feeling of lack of, absence of. And we live in poverty consciousness. I don't have enough. I need more. I have a lack of. If only I had If only I had, what the heck does that mean? And the movement that goes on, or the papancha, that one's life could be lived being driven along towards having and getting, it could be called getting love, getting attention, getting goods, getting prestige, getting position, getting authority, whatever. And we could be driving ourselves along in this way, not realizing we are in the spell of projections. We are in the spell of the proliferation or the production of lots of thinking that if I secure this, it will fill this hole. Unfortunately, what was that term that you used in education? An empty bucket? Empty, empty bucket theory. The empty bucket theory. Well, this is the empty bucket theory as well, but in this empty bucket theory, the bucket's got a bloody big hole in the middle. And all the attempts to fill our life up to get what we want, it goes in and it goes through and we still feel empty. Not in any healthy way. The life becomes an empty life. Constant searching for satisfaction, trying to get something to fill the hole and the effect of it is it is unfillable because there is a hole in this bucket. It's called neurosis. It's called madness. It's, this is madness. And this madness is going to destroy our species unless it changes. This madness of Papancha is going to destroy Mother Earth and all sentient beings due to investment in objects with features, with characteristics, with what is not there. And therefore it's, it's a constant wanting and destruction. Wanting and destruction. 
and it's gone berserk. And we, 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 the affluent, we, the privileged, we, the heads, have a particular responsibility to look at this. It's an extraordinary thing. All on papancha. Nothing else. Individually, collectively, socially. The politicians' minds are filled with it. The economists' minds are filled with it. The corporate minds are filled with it. All telling us growth, 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 growth. And never looking at the resources, never looking at the capital called Mother Earth. It's all papancha. It's a merciless projection. It takes something to look, wow, what's my part in all of this? Another area which goes with it, rather a hard talk, but sometimes better, is a second area that goes with it, is with regard to views. Views. Views, my God, views. Views and opinions. And the way this tends to, I think, show itself, because we want to look at views, and sometimes the proliferation, the production, as I said earlier, of thinking, thinking, thinking. But one of the ways that it shows itself for us is sometimes we have to look at the view and its consequence. One thing, the view and its impact, the view and its consequence. Sometimes we have to look as well at the view and the relationship to it in the form of holding. And this is a difficult one. Quite often in the uh, beloved nice Buddhist world, There is lots of useful emphasis, and I think we have to look at this rather carefully. Use, useful, nearly said useless, <laughs> runs the edge. Useful emphasis on looking at views and opinions. Truly useful for, for us. What can happen is there is a fear, F E A R, to stress the point a little bit for us, of sounding judgmental. And this hesitation, born of the fear, can stop when expressing views clearly. Because one is afraid, having looked a lot at the judgmental mind, whatever it might be, rather afraid of sounding judgmental, rather afraid of sounding out one's views, and views about things. And not surprisingly, in other worlds of our good species, where views are paramount, called politics, called social life, sometimes I hear my dear Buddhist friends, including teachers, who seem painfully shy of having a view about something. Oh, it's just a view. Or, and, uh, and so, when we had, 
at Beatenberg, a meeting, one of the questions was asked about the relationship to war. And rather sadly, in a way, we were given, we were given a minute or two each. So we went round, about 30 teachers. And one of my memories, I'm not saying I'm completely accurate, but one of my memories of it was how much there was some hesitation to express the view. Well, I've not really thought about it. What? Well, there could be occasions when war is necessary. We heard earlier on today the uh, view arising. Well, would it have been the right thing to do to assassinate um, Adolf Hitler during the 1930s, uh, etc.? So the mind creates uh, the view, and then there's a hesitation. Well, I'm not sure, I'm not really, etc. First link in the Noble Eightfold Path is called right view or clear view. It's not called undecided view, muddled view, confused view, or I don't really know what to say view. But that's what we often get. Tragic. Tragic it is. The Buddha makes an extraordinarily bold statement. I, I can still remember hearing it when I was a monk. And it sounded so conceited, so off the wall. I, I remember smiling. The Buddha said, I could almost you know, hear it. Some of us who have a smaller side here, I would say sometimes, two and a half thousand years ago. But when I'm in Bodhagaya, I can say, last year with the Buddha. When I'm in Sarana, I can, I can breathe the same cells of the, as the good man. He feels very close. And it always, because of this, for so many years now, always the voice, always right behind me. Not that I necessarily express anything too clearly, but it's extraordinarily close. Yeah. So the Buddha makes this statement. He said, I am not in dispute with the world, but sometimes the world is in dispute with me. Understand the word dispute, everybody? I am not in dispute with others, but sometimes others are in dispute with me. I went, whoa, that's a pretty bold thing to say. Then, stop still, a little meditation and reflection. Then look at myself, poor human being walking along the earth here. That, I know the difference too. And have been in plenty of situations in life, as I'm sure many of you have, whereby there is a difference of view. So he, she, they, expressing their view. And I know, know, Christopher, well enough to know whether I'm in dispute or in conflict with the person 
or whether I'm not. I can feel it. There's a different, definite qualitative feeling inside the cells that tell me I'm in conflict, I'm in an argument, I'm in that, or whether I am simply expressing a view which may be received and it may not be. It may be understood and it may not be. But I know I can put hand on heart and and know I am not in dispute. Even though we are speaking two different ways about the same subject and I know the feeling inside the cells when the self arises that with this perpancha emerging into the moment and there's a conflict. There's a difference. Significant difference. It doesn't mean to say that oh, well we're both right. This is always a nice cop out. We're both right. Maybe. <laughs> or another popular one-liner is well there are many ways to look at the same thing. Oh, very, etc. Another one is, oh, you have your view and I have my view and we're both right. (laughs) This is all avoiding. It's a nice, comfortable one-liner. Or as as, um, someone uh, in India, we was chairing um, a meeting of NGO workers in the field in in, in Bihar and Budgaya. And so one... Uh, oh, in my work in the villages, I keep reminding people that there are uh, many, many truths. Or one that's used in the uh, conflict resolution circles quite a lot is um, everybody has a slice of the truth. Some, of course, have a bigger one than the other, but anyway, <laughs> etc. This is it's a nice thought. It's a nice way to there. But I'm not quite sure whether or not it's how things really are. And it isn't easy for us as men and women on the earth to look and say, what is the view that I have? In the Zen tradition, there is a great reminder to us. The Buddha has also used it, but the Zen tradition has recognized it. It's called original mind original mind someone says to us sometimes you know our friends are our are the biggest pain in the neck in our life our friends because friends have this alarming habit of telling us what we want to hear and the Buddha said, this is no friend. So you've probably noticed, I don't know if you've noticed, you want to do something. You want to start something fresh on you. And who are you going to talk with? You've got to talk with your friends about it. And the friends know you, because that's what makes a friend, isn't it? There. So the friends may say, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't start it. You've done this before. 
you've tried this before. And it didn't work out, whatever, we got into a problem with it. I just wouldn't do it. So this is the external voice. It's a friend which becomes the voice of authority. It lands inside. It feeds the voice inside, which is already full of doubt or, 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 or lack of trust, put it more precisely. And you go to someone else and say, well, you know, I've known you for a long time and you're a good friend. And I, I would think about it. <laughs> what does that mean? I would think about it. When has thinking made any difference to anything? More papancha. So, so that voice then gets internalised as, as well. Put it with our own inner voice and there is the lack and absence of trust. And then we settle for the view of that they're right. They know me. It's probably not the best idea. What about risk? Either if you and I live under the spell of the past, if you and I live in such a way that we're just being shaped by our past, oh, I did it, it was like this, I was in this relationship like this, or I was in this job like this, or I shouldn't get into anything similar. If I, if I live this way, I'll never know original mind. How could I? I'm living with the view where my past is the determining factor for my present. What a view. Whoa. And others, my dear friends, bless their dear confused hearts, keep me locked in. The Buddha said, a friend is not one who pleases. A friend is one who contributes to our waking up. And one important element of this waking up is no past. That's holding to it. And all the views that go with it. So that we can be adventurous. And this is a, a challenge for the view. Sometimes I think it's better not to talk to anybody. Sometimes I think it's better to abide in noble silence and just dance with the life. Take the step, take the risk, make the mistake. Sometimes mistakes are much better for us than success. Much better for us. The other area, too, that goes along with this, the liberation and the exploration of this, is a whole area, a couple more minutes now we do, is a whole area of the self, the I, the me, the my. And particularly the papancha that goes into the roles. This is a great opportunity for massive projection. There's an English footballer married to a 
pop star. <laughs> we won't say their, their, his name. And mega rich, I heard recently, 100 million pounds, etc. And it's rather extraordinary in its own way. It's kicking a ball. <laughs> and it goes through the air. And it lands in the place that one wants it to land, occasionally. And this is worshipped. Isn't it? The leg, the foot, the ball. Wow! It's extraordinary. This is the extraordinary experience which has elevated a handful of these young guys up there into the stratosphere. And when this certain footballer who plays now for a certain Spanish team, who used to play for a certain <laughs> English team, went off to play a football game in America, he said to the press that he really wanted to be known in America. He's supposed to be one of the most famous men on the earth, but he really wants everybody in America to know who he is. God, I don't know you poor devil. The production of the image. Can you imagine wanting to walk around the streets and wanting to be known? But unfortunately, it creates the culture of celebrities. And as that American actor, Brad the Pitts, said a few years ago, the best thing he ever said, he said a lot of things as an actor, but the best thing he ever said was, there are three bad karmas in this world. To be born, or to be rather, rich, famous and handsome. Very bad karma. Rich, famous and beautiful. And yet, the Papancha has elevated this into being the aspiration of human success. At the subtle level, finally, I haven't even talked about symbols and potential actuality, I'll save it for another day. That Ajahn Buddhadas once, I told you, 18 or 20 hours on the first two links of dependent arising. I can flow along with this easily. <laughs> but I, 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 I promise you won't be here till tomorrow morning. <laughs> that we also, in the identification with the Papancha, easily build up Papancha into the eye, and especially with our roles. And we either build up in conceit of one form or putting ourselves down in another way this is papancha building up and putting down or with others and it's not an easy issue with life with the kind of roles that you and I have to be able to see it not as who I am but just an activity which others describe all oneself in the moment. You see the difference? 
they say I am A, then I can be building up and putting down. That's ego, pride, arrogance, putting oneself down, building oneself up. If I see role is simply a word to summarise an activity. So Christopher sits here, he talks too long, and others will say, oh, this is the, 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 the teacher just warming up. We'd never be able to, we'd never talk as long as our Asian brothers and sisters if we go for hours, but slightly tempted. And if we see the role not as a thing, but as an activity, no problem. When it becomes something who I am, good luck. When the role becomes something who I am, sleepless nights will be in store. Pressure will be building up or down. People will be approving of our role, disapproving of our role, hiring us and firing us, wanting us and rejecting us. And it will be a problem if we think the role is who I am. It will be a problem if we think the role is who I am. And when it is, it's due to papancha projections. Something. It is something as well. Finally, I'm not doing too bad, it's only 10 to 5. Important thing here. When I look at the world around me, or I look at the inner, and particularly with regard to the inner, or the outer, I may see something which is actual, the bare event. The beautiful thing about being in touch with the bare actuality, really observing it clearly, really, whatever it might be, could be looking at a single leaf, just for that connection, as we heard earlier. It could be just be taking notice of something which is around us, really giving it the fullness of attention. The beauty of looking with mindful conscious, full attention, it does two things. One, it reveals the bare actuality, and the other, it has the chance to reveal the potential out of the situation. That tends to come through looking at the bare actuality. And there are men and women on this earth and in this room whereby a situation or an environment or a person that we have really connected with, genuinely so, and some of us can put names to all of the places and people in our lives, where we've made a strong connection, there is the bare actuality of that meeting, place, situation, environment. It's touched us deeply, 
more so than sometimes we realize. And out of it has come a vision. Out of it has come a, a potential to which we are challenged to respond to. That actuality and that potential for its actualization, I'm living a certain life, something or someone has really touched me, I make a change, I see the potential, I know it's going to be a great challenge. That whole movement does not have to carry any papancha. The Buddha was under the tree. Great insights, realization, looking at the issues of life. Then the vision to serve others, to share this with others. And in the moment afterwards, I can't remember the two Pali words, but in the moment afterwards, there was some doubt. Oh, there are, uh, it's going to be too difficult. I know the feeling. I won't understand what's the point. And then he said it would be tiring and irritating. Tiring and irritating to take this incomparable Dharma and make it available to others. Tiring and irritating. So, if the Buddha, in the huge wave of bliss, there I use the word, enlightenment, awakening, realization, profound discovery, can have some doubt right after the event, what to say of you and me? See what I mean? So to imagine, oh, the vision comes, I see the potential, I'm responding to the potential. I see it as clearly as I can. I don't think it's charged with all these projections and proliferations of thinking. Even with all of that, still the thought can come. Should I? Is it worth it? Should I take the risk? Will it work out? If the Buddha can have that thought, not five metres from the Bodhi tree, I think we can allow ourselves to have it as well. Why not? Do we then wait for someone to come along, this Brahmin, and say, look, uh, look here, Sid. Um, there are some people around with not too much dust in their eyes. All oh, right. Look, we may, we may not find. Somebody could have come up to the Buddha and said, yes mate, you're right. <laughs> it would be tiring. Don't, don't bother. Just hang out under the, under the tree and rot. <laughs> Etc. So, we have to listen inwardly and outwardly and hopefully out of that actuality and potential can actualize itself. with the doubt with the uncertainty maybe worthwhile spending one's whole life dedicated to something 
It may be such that one never sees the real benefits or fruits of it. So what? And all of this is part of the challenge. Otherwise, we'll end up as good Buddhist meditators sitting on our backside on endless retreats, seeing things as they are, seeing the actuality and not realizing the potential. That the vision doesn't flower and emerge out of us. And that's a great challenge for all of us. Sometimes, laboring on a little bit, forgive me, there's a long tradition of talking a long time. Ajahn Dhammadro, his record, was from around 8 o'clock in the evening, when I was there, till well after midnight. So, we've got a few hours yet. So <laughs> Sometimes, this is an important thing here, is the importance of symbol. 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 And I find myself, for various reasons, kind of reflecting on symbols. Sometimes the symbol gets confused with the papancha. I was watching the TV the other uh, night and I'm, I was glad to hear that I'm qualified to do so because I'm over 15. <laughs> and while watching the television that's not burning. Anyway, while watching the television one of the advertisements that came on was everything was in black and white on the screen except for the car some French or German car or whatever, English car or whatever. No, no English cars left, French or German. And the car was in beautiful brand new colour and people were standing on the pavement in black and white and they all turned their attention to this new, whatever it was, Volkswagen, Renault, Peugeot, who cares, all tin on wheels. And there it's going down to it and everybody's looking at it. This is car worship. This is nothing but car worship. And upon which there's a great deal of projection. But the, that projection in its unhealthy condition, the car is a symbol for the self. You understand? You won't see that football I just mentioned to you driving around in a little cheap four-door saloon. What a chance. Because that's not who he is. He's Ferrari. <laughs> Rolls-Royce. Top-of-the-range Mercedes-Benz. That's who he is. Not a little cheapo thing, five or ten years old, which is going to go to the dump a little way down the line. The symbol... And when on the television it says to us, oh, get this car and you can get to 100 kilometers an hour in seven seconds. Wow. Brilliant. 
I'm going to save one and a half seconds. <laughs> what am I going to do with all my free time? <laughs> this is called madness. Madness. And we literally buy the madness. We buy it. We're so stupid. We buy it. And we live in this. Therefore, there is projection, the projection in its unhealthy. The thing becomes a symbol for who I am. Painful. Painful. Affirmation from the object. Called the person. Called the fans. Called the neighbours. Called the car outside my front door. Could it be, in the exploration of this, that sometimes in life, the symbol inspires. I go to Bodhgaya. Talking about this eye here. And I go annually. Been giving retreats there every um, January since 1975. I think I met him this one year. Have a strong connection with the place. With the village. Senior Dharma teacher because of the continuity of the, of the years of going to Budgaya. And there's a tree there. It's just a tree. I'm a good Buddhist. I just see a tree. And there's a tree around the corner, and a tree around the back, and a tree... I could say, oh, there's just a tree. Millions of people over the years have travelled to make the pilgrimage to this tree. And there's a, a buzz about it, going to Budgaya. And I hope some of you have already been, some of you have been a few times, and I hope others of you will perhaps one day make the pilgrimage. At one level, it's just a tree. At another level, it's a symbol of something. The good man, not another man, but of awakening. It can touch a place within which is a reminder to us of something very deep and profound. If one just sees a tree, one will say, well, there are lots of trees, there's nothing special about that particular tree. <coughs> it's true. There are many, many trees, and this is just one of the trees. As a symbolic act, a symbolic communication, it has the potential to remind us of awakening. A potential to remind us of our potential, of our opportunity to realize Buddha nature. Therefore, the symbol is invaluable. In two or three weeks, oh no, it's a bit longer, we make the walk, the yatra, the pilgrimage, for 14 days in France. 
There is the bare event. 200 people, silence, single file, three hours in the morning, two or three hours in the afternoon, etc. Dharma teachings, practices, groups, and so forth. At one level, it's just it's a pilgrimage. Men and women walking silently and gently on the earth and respectfully to the earth and to each other and to the, to the world that we live in. At another level, it's a symbol. It's a symbol of keeping something really alive, precious, of connectedness. It's a symbol that men and women have been making pilgrimages on the earth for centuries upon centuries. It's a, it's a, a symbol which represents something of dignity and presence and quality. It, it tells us of something. And this means that there's the actuality of events that take place and also what it represents. It's a symbol. And I think in this world and in our inner life and our outer life to see things as they are is of course to acknowledge the bare actuality. It is to see the potential and the vision and to recognise the act of situations which you and I enter in which are a symbol for something beautiful. And we need them. We need these. I make fun of them, I know. I've said a few times over the years, the most important thing about the Buddha image is to remind us of a straight back. If we walk into my house, literally, you cannot get into the front door, through the front door. The first thing you'll see on the shelf, just inside the front door, is what? Is a Buddha image. If you walk into the living room, you'll see a big Buddha picture hanging on the wall. If you go into the kitchen, on the mantelpiece, you'll see a Buddha image. If you look at the shelf in the kitchen, there's another little Buddha image. Go into my bedroom, there's two or three. If you go into my office, there's several. If you go on the stairs, you'll, you'll see them. The house is full of them. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> because they remind one, consciously and unconsciously, of peace of calm, of love, of tolerance, of respect, of awakening. They're a symbol for something. But we mustn't forget that in the bare symbol, it's no use just leaving the symbol there, it's to deeply remind that it brings some kind of response out of us. Bare actuality, vision, and potential, symbol, and being clear in ourselves when Papancha has entered into the field of life which distorts it either through projecting onto objects characteristics which they don't have, which is one, projecting onto views and opinions which generates conflict and dispute, or generating onto self where we're building ourselves up and putting ourselves down. And if you and I, as men and women on the earth, can work fully into this, and really look at this, we provide a service. 
for every being on the planet for all of us and our children and our grandchildren because we said I want to look at the projecting mind and I want to live a way of life which is radically different from it and that's an extraordinary challenge and I hope all of us will listen to this voice of authentic truth and engagement and not find ourselves submitting to the kind of voices which stop us from taking risks the kind of friends who really don't really trust us to embark on something so that we listen inwardly to that uh, uh, the voice of the Buddha enough let's have a quiet minute